worldwide worship of you, Father. We're just humbled at the fact that you want us and you know us and you love us. So, Father, as we continue to worship this morning by hearing of your word, God, let that just be so present in our hearts, God, that you are a God that wants us. Thank you, Father, for your love, for your mercy, for the grace that you extend to us every morning. Bless every heart that is in here as we bless your name this morning. We love you. We do all this through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen, church. You may be seated. Good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco, and I am the campus pastor at Tri-Village Church, which is our Streamwood campus, and it's such a blessing to be with you here today. And uh, for those of you who have been following along, today we are in the final part of our series in the book of 1 John. And so if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to 1 John, we are going to be in chapter 5, verse 21. And so this morning we are going to be in the last verse of the last chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. And this morning, we are going to look at one verse and one verse only. And for those of you who don't think I can preach 40 minutes on one verse, you haven't been to Tri-Village Church, apparently, <laughs> because I could and I will. All right? Here's what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So let's do some crowd participation, okay? We're all going to say this verse together. And if there's a verse you want to memorize this week, there's a perfect verse for you to memorize. Okay, so let's say it together. Ready? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so this morning what we're going to do is we are going to be discussing and addressing the subject of idolatry. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at idolatry under two headings. We're going to look at idolatry under two headings. We are going to look at the problem of idolatry. idolatry. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution for idolatry, all right? So we're going to look at the problem of it, and then we're going to look at the solution for it. So let's begin by looking at the problem of idolatry. And what I want to do this morning in order to convince you that there's a problem is I want to ask and answer three questions concerning idolatry. Three questions that once we answer, my hope is we will all come to the realization that we struggle with idolatry. So the first question I want to ask and answer this morning is, what is idolatry? What is it? The second question I want to ask and answer this morning is, what are the different types of idols? What are the different types of idols? And the third question I want to ask and answer this morning is I want to ask and answer, where do idols come from? Where do our idols actually come from? And so my hope is by answering these three questions, we will understand just how serious this problem with idolatry actually is. All right? So the first question I want to ask this morning is, what is idolatry? And in the passage, what John does is he tells us, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, one of the things that's weird about this verse is that the way that John ends 
It's, it's, it's a very strange way to end a letter. Because usually when you look at letters, right, when you look at how Peter writes, how John, how James writes, um, how, how Paul writes, almost always at the end of the letter they do a formal farewell. They say bye to so-and-so. They pray for someone else. And they say, hey, bring me this, bring me that. And, and they, essentially they say goodbye. It's a formal, a formal farewell at the end of every letter. But what's interesting about John is that John doesn't do that. And if, you, if you're reading through, through 1 John, this can actually be a very abrupt ending. It, it almost seems sudden. It seems like very sudden, abrupt, and awkward. He's, he's talking about all these different things, and then he ends it with, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And if you didn't know any better, it would almost be as if, like, it, it's almost as if John was writing, and then he went to the bathroom or he got distracted, and then he forgot to finish, and he just sent the letter. Right? And what's interesting is that the whole concept of idolatry, it almost seems like a non sequitur. It almost seems like he's bringing up an entirely new point because he hasn't brought up idolatry anywhere in this letter. And then all of a sudden he ends by saying, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. But here's what commentators say. Commentators say that even though it seems like John is changing the topic, he's changing the subject, what he's actually doing is he's summarizing the letter. What he's actually doing is he's cementing his point. And here's why. Because for those of you who have read through 1 John or for those of you who've been going, you know, uh, week by week through this series, what you've uh, uh, like seen as we've gone through this letter is that John's primary purpose in this letter has been to teach us how to love God and love other people. That's been pretty much the purpose of 1 John. And so the reason why he brings up idolatry at the end and the reason why idolatry being brought up is not a non sequitur or some random awkward ending is because John knows that the thing that's most likely going to keep you from loving God and loving others is idolatry, okay? Idolatry is the sin beneath every other sin. Actually, in the word study that I looked at this week, that word idols there in the verse, the word idols, it means uh, an apparition, a phantom of the mind. That's what it's in Greek, a phantom of the mind. So it's a false image, a false god, a counterfeit copy. That's what an idol is. And even though that definition is fine, the, the, actually the best definition I came across uh, this week was by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on 1 John. So I want to read you his definition because I think it's so well said. Look how he puts it. He says, what is idolatry? Well, an idol can be defined most simply in this way. An idol is anything in our lives that, occupy, that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be vital, anything that is essential to me, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and attention, my energy and my mind. And then look how he ends. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. So according to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, an idol is anything that you love, trust, rely on, or obey more than Jesus. That's what an idol is. Now the reason why it's so important for us to have a biblical definition of what idolatry is, is because so often when we hear the word idolatry, we think of basic primitive people in the Old Testament. Right? When we think of the concept of idolatry, we think of a little statue, and we think of child sacrifices, and we think of just these primitive, basic people worshiping a figurine on their mantle. That's what we think of when we think of idolatry. But what we see, according to the word study, and what we see, according to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, idolatry is, is, is much more pervasive than a lot of us would like to admit. 
And this week I came across a story in one of the, the books I was reading, and here's what they said. It was really interesting. The author said that he had a friend of his who went on a trip, on a missions trip to India. And while his friend was in India, he got to visit this home of a Hindu family. And he went inside, and one of the things that he found very interesting was that in this home um, there was an idol. There was a statue in the middle of their living room. And it says that what, what, what most surprised his friend was that all the furniture in the room was centered around this idol. All the furniture in the room was centered around this figurine, this statue that they had in their living room. And so his friend went to the house. He, he secretly took a photo of the room. And then he came back and, sh and shared it with his pastor friend. And he's like, look at this. Tell me this isn't ridiculous. And they're looking at the photo. And he said that both him and his friend were judging this family. Like, look at these people. How primitive is this? How ridiculous is this? Having an idol in the middle of your living room. Who would do that? Pagans, right? Then he said, after a long day at work, he went home, he plopped on his recliner, he pulled that thing, that baby back, turned on Sports Center, and then it hit him. <laughs> he looked around the room and realized that all the furniture in his room was centered around his family's idol, which was the entertainment system. See, so what we see with that story is that idolatry is not a back then issue. Idolatry is not an over there issue. Idolatry is a right now in here issue. We all struggle with idolatry. And you know what's interesting? In the Old Testament, idolatry was actually a capital offense. So in the, if, in the Old Testament, if you were caught with an idol, you were actually executed for it. You were executed. And if you look in the book of Exodus, one of the reasons why God tells the Israelites to get rid of the Canaanites in the promised land was because of their sin of idolatry. And so in the Old Testament, idolatry was a capital offense. The other thing that's interesting about idolatry in the Old Testament is that if you look at the book of Jeremiah, the book of Hosea, the book of Ecclesiastes, not sorry, not Ecclesiastes, uh, Ezekiel, if you look at the Old Testament, one of the things that Old Testament prophets would do again and again and again is they would compare idolatry to adultery. Idolatry, according to the Old Testament, is adultery. See, when we, when we worship something smaller than Jesus, we just think we're replacing a God. But according to the Old Testament, what we're actually doing is we're cheating on our spouse. We're cheating on our spouse. That's what we do. So according to Scripture, when you worship something smaller than Jesus, you're not just replacing God, you're in the arms of another lover. You're in bed with something else. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now, let me give you an example to illustrate this. If, if, if after, let's say, later on tonight, you know, 7, 8 o'clock, you went to John and Tony's across the street to get dinner with your family, and if you haven't gone, you should go. It's a great place, right? Um, it's like the only place Rob Boo eats at. <laughs> it should be like John, Tony's, and Rob. Like, that should be the name of the place. Um, but anyways, so... So let's say you went out with your, with your family to John and Tony's, right? And you're sitting there, you're enjoying a meal. And then all of a sudden, you look towards the corner of the restaurant, and at the final booth, in the last booth in the, this dark, shady area, you see with me. And you're like, oh, wait, that's Pastor Will. He just preached this morning, right? But the angle at which you're sitting at, you can't see who's sitting with me in the booth. But as you eat dinner, you can tell that whoever I'm sitting with, it's a, it's a very romantic dinner because I'm reaching over, I'm grabbing their hands, I'm, I'm leaning across the table, I'm giving them a kiss, there's a romantic votive candle in between us, you know, one of those little candles, which actually, by the way, those little votive candles, that, that, the electric battery powered ones, I actually would bring those with me when I was dating my wife. And so no matter where I took her, I would put, her in, I would put it in the, in the middle of our table. So I would take her like to McDonald's and there would be a votive candle in between us. 
And I'd be like, baby, it's all about you tonight. Get whatever you want. Get whatever you want. Right? And so, and so you're, 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 you're looking at me from the corner of your eye, and you're like, oh, man, how sweet. Will's there with Lily. They're having a romantic day. So at the end of your dinner, you decide, you know what, let's go by and, 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 and say hello. And as you walk up to my, the table, you, you turn the corner, and you, what you realize to your shock is that the person who I'm eating with is another woman. Now, if you saw that, remember, you've been watching me the whole, the whole night, so you know that it's a romantic event. It's a romantic day. And then you ask me about it. You're like, hey, so who's that? And instead of just, instead of like denying it, I'm like, oh, that's my, that's my Tuesday girl. This is the girl I go out with on Tuesday. My, my Wednesday girl likes chili, so we're going there tomorrow, but, but this, is my, this is my Tuesday girl. Right? That would be shocking. You would literally get home and call one of the elders and say, you need to fire this man immediately. Why? Because what I'm doing is adultery. That's the image we have to have when we think about idols. When you worship something smaller than Jesus, you're not just replacing a, a, a God. You are cheating on your spouse. You are in the arms of someone else. You are in bed with something else, another lover. That's what we're doing when we commit idolatry. Idolatry is adultery. Idolatry always is adultery. That's why Martin Luther, in his greater catechism, Martin Luther, he, go, he goes to the Ten Commandments, and what he says is so profound about the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther says, you know, there's obviously there's Ten Commandments. He says, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what it says in Scripture. You, have, you shall have no other gods before me. And what Luther argues is that you actually cannot break commandments two through ten without first breaking the first commandment. He says that's how essential idolatry is. That's how foundational idolatry is. So, for example, if I steal something, I've stolen something because I've already committed idolatry. If I lie to you, I lie to you because I've already committed idolatry. Right? Because when I steal something, think about it. When I steal something, the reason why I'm stealing that is because that thing means more to me than God. And so I'm willing to break the commandment in order to get that thing. In other words, I've committed idolatry before I commit theft. See? Or let's say I'm telling you a story, right? Let's say I'm talking to you and we're interacting and I, 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 I'm telling you a story and I exaggerate my story or I withhold information from the story because I want to look good in front of you. I've just lied to you. I've broken the ninth commandment. But before I broke the, the ninth commandment, I broke the first commandment because in that moment, I care more about what you think about me than what God thinks about me. So the reason why I'm exaggerating my story or withholding from my story is because I want you to approve me. My approval isn't coming from Jesus. My approval is coming from you. So I had to break the first commandment before I broke the ninth commandment. That's why idolatry is so dangerous. Idolatry isn't a problem. It is the problem. It, it isn't a issue. It is the issue. Look at this quote from, from Kyle Eidelman in his book, God's at War. Such a good quote. He says, idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it is the one great sin that all other sins come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, eventually you'll find that underneath, underneath it is a false god. Until that god is dethroned and the Lord God takes his rightful place, you will not have victory. Idolatry isn't an issue. It is the issue. All roads lead to the dusty, overlooked concept of false gods. Deal with life on the glossy outer layers and you might never see it. Scratch a little beneath the surface and you begin to see that it's always there under some other coat of paint. Then he says, there are a hundred million different symptoms, but the issue is always idolatry. The issue is always idolatry. 
So hopefully by now we're all starting to see that this is a problem. It's not just a me problem, it's a we problem, right? So that's the first question, what is it? The second question I want to ask and answer this morning in order for us to understand how serious this issue is, is I want to I ask and answer, answer the question, what are the different types of idols? Because some of you might still be sitting here thinking, nah, I don't struggle with this. This is, this is someone else's issue. And so the second question I want to ask and answer is, what are the different types of idols? What are the different categories of idols? And this is one of the ways that the way I want to do it is actually from this book I read uh, maybe two, three years ago. And what the author does in the book is he takes the word idol, idols, and he uses it as an acronym. And each letter in the word idols represents another category of potential idols. So he takes the word, the letter I, the first letter in idols, takes the letter I, and he says the first category of idols is items, items. So things that we own, our possessions. So it's things that we own that we think we own but actually own us. So under that first category, it can be your car, it can be your bank account, it can be your house, it can be your summer home, it can be your other summer home, it can be your summer summer home, it can be your winter home, uh, for those, for some of you. Um, um, I only got one house, but whatever. Uh, so, uh, um, so, it, so it could be anything. It can be a, a TV, it can be a phone, it can be technology. So the first category of, of idols is items, items. The second category of idols, the D, is duties. So roles, duties, the roles we play. So for some of you, your idol might be your role as a parent. For some of you, your idol might be your role as a spouse or your role as an employee or your role as a boss or your role as a student or your role as an athlete. So duties. The, second cat the third category, so we have items, we have duties. The third category is O, which is others. Other people can be idols. So your spouse can be an idol, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends your teammates, your teacher, your boss, your children. Under others, actually, others actually includes you too. See, some people say that the, the, the most basic sin is pride. No, 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 no. Because all pride is is idolatry. Instead of putting something in God's place, you're putting yourself in God's place. That's what pride is. So it's actually idolatry, pride. Okay? So the first category is items. The second category is duties. The third category is others. The L is longings, longings. See, every single one of us has been created by God to have longings. We have a longing, a desire to be loved, a desire to be accepted, a desire to be secured, to be secure. All those desires and longings are great things. The problem is, is when we, we take those longings and we try to satisfy them with something smaller than Jesus. That's actually what the New Testament does. God, Paul actually in the New Testament, he creates a new word that didn't exist before. The, the word thumai or thumia is the word desire or lust in, in Greek. And what Paul does in, in Galatians is he comes up with a new word called epithumia. Epi means over, so, so it's an over-desire. We take good desires and we promote them to be God desires. We take good things and we make them God things. And that's when idolatry happens. So items, duties, others, longings. And the S, and this one's really interesting, the, the fifth category of idols is suffering. Suffering. See, some of you here have gone through tremendous suffering. Some of you have gone through cancer. Some of you have gone through bankruptcy. Some of you have gone through sexual abuse. Some of you have gone through divorce. Some of you grew up in single-family homes. And if we're not careful, those moments, those events can define us more than the gospel does. And so when you meet people, they find out you're a cancer survivor before they find out you're a Christian. 
So your suffering, listen, your suffering explains you, but your suffering doesn't define you. And what a lot of us have done is we've allowed past sins, things that we've gone through to define us, and we find our identity, our security, our value, and what's been done to us instead of what was done for us by Jesus. Your suffering explains you, it does not define you. And so all of those are examples of idols. Those are all categories of idols. Now here's the thing. All those examples I just gave you are well and good. But there's another layer to this that I don't want you to miss. When, when you look at idolatry, there are actually two kinds of idols. So I gave you examples of surface idols, but, but there, there's another category of idols called root idols. So I have a, a slide up here that I want you to see. And I think it's really important for us to, to really understand how serious this issue is. And this isn't original to me. This is from several books that I've read. But, but by and large, there are two types of idols. There are surface idols and there are root idols. Okay? Now, let me explain it to you this way. Those five categories I just gave you, items, duties, others, longings, sufferings, all, those, all those, those, those things I just gave you fall into the top category. They are surface idols. And the reason why those are surface idols is because anyone who spends more than 10 minutes with you figures out what you actually worship. See, your kids actually know what you worship, what you really worship, okay? What you really worship. This is a story I just thought of. Maybe it's a good idea or not, but I'm going to just share. It just came to mind. But um, I, there was a story once told about a mom, who, who, a mother who had the pastor coming over for, for a, a counseling, right? And it was the husband and the wife. And when the pastor came over, the, the mom was like, hey, honey, to the, little, to, the, to the little boy, she's like, can you run up and get mommy's favorite book, right? Because she wanted the pastor to see her Bible. So the kid runs up. He takes a few minutes, and he comes down, and she's, she reaches out to grab the Bible, and he gives her the J.C. Penney catalog. Right? Your kids actually know what you worship. So all those, all a surface idol is anything that people will see if they spend enough time with you. Right? But what people don't see and what many times what we don't see is we don't see our root idols. Our root idols. And here's what a root idol is. A root idol can be one of three things. It can be significant, satisfaction, or security. Every person in here was designed by God to need significant, satisfaction, and security. But usually, by and large, we tend to prefer one over the other. So some people are significance people. Some people are security people. Some people are satisfaction people. Now, the people who want security, I mean significance, the significance people are the people who desperately need to be accepted. They desperately need to be approved of. They desperately need to be applauded. Their biggest fear is being rejected. Their biggest fear is being a failure, Right? The people who struggle with security, those are the people who desperately need control, who desperately need power. The attribute of God they most struggle with is God's sovereignty, God's providence, because they don't want God to be in control. They want to be in control. They want to have the 5, 10-year, 15-year plan. They get anxious when they don't have control. Those are the security people. The satisfaction people are the people that, more than anything else, they want comfort. They want peace. They want pleasure. They want the abundant life. And so if, if their spouse and them are disagreeing, they'll be like, yeah, honey, whatever you want. Yeah, 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 just, just leave me alone because comfort and peace are my most important thing. Right? Now let me give you an example of how this plays out. I have historically been a significance person. The need that I am almost always trying to fill is my need to be loved, my need to be accepted and approved of. Okay? My wife has historically been a security person. 
So her deep need is to be, to have power, to have control, to have a plan, to know what's coming up next. So let me give you an example of how this plays out. Whenever Lily, my wife and I, Lily, get a check, whether it's a paycheck or money in the mail, because of our deep root idols, we actually respond to that money differently. When I get money, I want to spend it. You know why? Because spending makes me look a certain way. If I buy the right things, if I wear the right clothes, if I live in the right neighborhood, then I will look the right way. I will be approved of. I will be accepted. I will be applauded. Since my wife is a security person, when she gets money, she wants to save it. Because as long as we have money in the bank, we are okay. We can, we can be in control. It will be all right. You see how dangerous idols are? So on the surface, it just looks like there's a spender and a saver. But really what you have is two idol worshipers who have different idol structures. One's using money to get approval and the other one's using money to get security. Let me give you another example. If my wife and I are at a restaurant, right, we have two little girls, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. If my wife and I are at a restaurant and we, uh, one of our girls or both of our girls, God forbid, they throw a tantrum and they're crying and they're freaking out. We both get angry, both me and my wife. But the reason why I'm angry because I'm a significance person is because I look bad. I'm mad because they're making me look bad in front of the other people. And so I just want them to shut up. I just want them to stop making noise because I don't want, I don't want to look bad. My wife is mad not because she looks bad, but my wife is mad, mad because they're no longer obeying her. She's no longer in control. She can care less what people think. She's mad that our daughters are not obeying her rule. And so that's why we deal with it so differently. If my girls are freaking out, I deal with it by just giving them money or candy. I'll give them the shirt off my back. I don't care. I just need them to stop. It's not a win or lose thing. I just need you to stop making noise and embarrassing me. But not my wife. She won't settle for just, hey, watch Netflix or, hey, here's a piece of candy. No, no, no. She wants them to stop because she told them to stop. They got to stop a certain way because she wants them to obey her. She wants to control the situation. That's how dangerous idols are. That's how dangerous idols are. So you have to ask yourself, what, what's my idol? What's the thing that I am most tempted to worship other than Jesus? You know, one of the ways you can figure out what your idol, are, idol is, is by asking yourself, what is the vine that I cling to? What is the vine that I abide in? You know, one of the things that Jesus says in John 15, he says, you can do nothing apart from me. I am the vine and you are the branches. But you know what's so interesting about the Greek is that Jesus doesn't say I am the only vine. He says, I am the true vine. So what that means is, is that there are actually counterfeit vines. And a lot of us are getting our sustenance, our identity, our value from a counterfeit vine right now. We are abiding in something other than the true vine. He doesn't say he's the only one. He says he's the true one. And so ask yourself, where do I get my sustenance? Where do I find salvation? What is my heaven and what is my hell? See, listen, if your heaven is being in a relationship, then your hell is not the hell of the Bible. Your hell is being alone. If your heaven is having money, then your hell is not the hell of the Bible. Your hell is being broke. If your heaven is being accepted by your peers, then your hell is not the hell of the Bible. Your hell is being rejected by your peers. See, that's the problem. When you change something in the equation, you actually end up believing a totally different gospel. A lot of us are believing, protecting, and promoting radically different gospels than the one that John is preaching. That's the danger. 
I heard one pastor put it this way, that idolatry is a top button issue. You know how it, it, this happens to me all the time. If I, put, if I get the top button wrong, all the other buttons are off. And then I get to the bottom and it's like, there's like a gap. I'm like, what the heck? That's what idolatry is. If you don't get the top button right, all the other buttons are off. And she's like, I'm struggling in my marriage. That's idolatry. Well, I'm struggling in my parenting. That's idolatry. Well, I'm struggling at work. That's idolatry. You have the wrong button. There's something at the top that shouldn't be at the top. You're in bed with another lover. You're in the arms of something else. You see, so often when we think of a soul, we, we think of a soul as this empty well that we have to fill with things. And that's a decent illustration, but, but actually the better illustration of your soul, your soul is like two open arms trying to embrace something. Every day we walk around like this. Something to hug. Something to love. Something to embrace. That's what we do. When we go to work, when we get home, when we're at school, when we're at church, we're all like this. Our soul is two open arms looking for something to embrace. And almost always what we embrace is infinitely smaller than Jesus. Okay? So first question, what is idolatry? The second question is what are the types of idols? And the last question I want to ask before we get to the second point is this. Where do idols come from? Where do idols come from? Right? Well, here's the answer. In Romans chapter 1, Paul actually tells us where they come from. He says that idols come from our hearts. That we humans, we take the glory of God and we exchange it for something infinitely smaller than him. So we are the, that's why in, in, in the second commandment says do not fashion any other gods. Because that's what we do. We are professional fashioners. We are constantly making little gods to worship. We're constantly making little gods to worship. And so a mother would look at her daughter and say, honey, don't find your identity in your, in your boyfriend. And the daughter can go back and say, mom, but you're finding your identity in dad. Why? Because we're always making little idols. Our hearts, is like a, our hearts are like a little, like we're like an Etsy account. Always building new trinkets. You, you have an Etsy account even if you don't know you do. John Calvin says we have, we are, an, our hearts are an idol factory, just producing new idols all the time, all the time, new idols, new idols, new idols. You know, in the book of Joshua, there's this very interesting verse. It's actually probably the most famous verse in all of Joshua. And so often, we as Christians, we pick one part of the verse and ignore the rest of it, because that's what Christians do, right? That's what we do. We, 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 we get the, the most tweetable verse, we put it on our wall, and we think we're spiritual. But here's what's interesting. In that passage... There's something else that Joshua says, right? Because the verse that I'm talking about is the verse where John said, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Everyone loves that verse, right? But you actually, if you only look at that verse, you actually miss on what, what else Joshua is saying. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. He says, throw away the gods your ancestors worships, your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, uh, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And then he says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, if you go back to the previous section, I need you to see something here. See, what, what we think is that Joshua only gives one option, but he doesn't only give one option. He actually gives four options. He says, you can worship four different kind of gods. There are four places that gods come from. 
And in one of the books I read, the, the, the author just did such an amazing job unpacking this, this passage. He says that the first place that idols can come from is from our past. Because he talks about the gods that were beyond the Euphrates. You know whose gods those are? Those are the gods of Abraham. According to the Bible, before Abraham became a Jew, he was an idol worshiper and so was his dad. So the gods of our past are the gods of Abraham. Abraham was the person who, before he came to know the Lord, worshipped things smaller than the Lord. And so what he does in the book, the author, is he takes that concept and he says, the gods of our past are the gods that we were born into when we were born into our family. See, every family has idols. Newsflash. Every family has idols. And so often when families judge each other, like especially now with Thanksgiving, right? Like there's that one family member that you always judge. There's that, like, youth, I'm better than them. Or I'm better than them. Clearly I'm better than them. The, the, the standard that you're using almost always is that you're worshiping a different idol than them. So you might be worshiping money and they're worshiping self-expression. You might be worshiping, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, grades and they might be worshiping fill in the blank. And so you're judging each other, but actually all you're doing is worshiping different gods, right? And so the first category of, of, of the first place where, where idols can come from is from our past. So when you were born, the home in which you were born to had idols, and I don't care if your parents were Christians. Those home, that home had idols. So maybe your dad was a workaholic, and maybe your mom worshipped her kids. And maybe you had a sibling who worshipped grades. Those, those idols affect you still to this day. So you have many men who, who were born in a workaholic home and have kept that same tendency growing up. Because that's what their dad did. That's the only example they had. Or in their rebellion to it, they, 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 they flipped to the whole other extreme. And instead of worshipping work, they worshipped their family, but it's still an idol. So your past sins play a major role in what you worship. You know, one of, you know what's really funny, for the, especially for men, because I'm guilty of this, especially for men who worship their job, when we look at these primitive, simple people from the Old Testament, we're like, how can you, how can you ever believe in child sacrifice? That's so ridiculous. But how many men are doing that very thing with their children because of their job? How many men are putting their children on the, on the altar for a raise, for a promotion, for career advancement. Child sacrifice is very, very, still very much alive and well in our day. So your past sins was one of the places. And then he talks about the gods of Egypt. You know what's so interesting? The Israelites were in Egypt twice as long as we've been a nation. Think about how long that is. 400 years in captivity. So there's no way you can be in a place that long and not be affected by their idols, right? And what the author says is that the Egypt gods are the personal gods that we worship. There are personal gods that you and I worship. So the personal gods aren't the past ones that were given to you. The personal ones are the ones that you collect as you walk through life. Maybe you got some idols in middle school. Maybe you picked up some idols in high school. Maybe you were on a sports team and you picked up some idols there. The personal ones, the Egyptian gods, are the ones that we picked up as we went along. Right? Then he talks about the God of the, of the Amorites, the land that you're currently living in. Those gods, so if the first category are your past sins, the second category are your personal sins, then the third category are your present, your present idols, the ones that we're most tempted to worship now. In our day, the land that we're currently in, the United States of America, there are many idols that, the, that this nation is telling you to believe in. We have to be aware of those idols. We have to be aware of those idols. And what we have to do is we have to go to the fourth option, which is the Lord our God. Not our past idols, not our personal ones, not our present ones, but the Lord our God. So, hopefully by now, we can all agree that we have a problem with idolatry. Amen? Amen? 
So what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to talk to you about the solution. The solution to idolatry. The solution for idolatry. And what's interesting is that there are two solutions, and both solutions come from the passage that we've been looking at. Remember what the passage says. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And actually, the, solu the two solutions to our problem come from this verse. Both solutions come from the same verse. According to John, there are two things we need to do in order to deal with our, with our idolatry problem. The first thing is we need to protect ourselves. The second thing we need to do is we need to preach to ourselves. We need to protect ourselves, and then we need to preach to ourselves. The first step we need to take if we're going to find a solution to our idolatry problem is we need to protect ourselves. Where do I get that? Well, I get that from the word keep. The word keep in Greek means to protect. It means to stand on guard. It means to be vigilant. It means to be aware. It means to stay alert. See, half the battle is just realizing that there's a battle. A lot of us go through life and don't even act like idolatry is an issue because we think of the primitive, simple people. That's their struggle. That's not my struggle. And so the first step, which is the one I'm going to spend the least amount of time in, is we need to protect ourselves. We need to stay on guard. We need to be aware. Whenever my wife and I go on a date, we, we don't talk about the mortgage. We don't talk about ministry. We don't talk about our kids. We talk about our idols. I check on her heart, she checks on my heart. Because I guarantee you that, that, that Jesus is not on the throne of her heart. And I can guarantee you that Jesus is not, the throne of my, not on the throne of my heart. I check her idol so I know how to pray for her. She checks my idol so, I know how to, so, she, so she knows how to pray for me. That's what a date should be about. Okay? So the first, the first solution to our problem with idolatry is that we need to protect ourselves. But the second solution, and this is the one I want to spend more time on, is we need to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves. And the question is, what are we preaching to ourselves? Well, I don't want you to miss this, but actually the ultimate solution to idolatry is found right in the middle of this verse. Right, right at the beginning of it. Because he says, dear children, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourself in mouth. You know what the word dear children means? It actually means little born ones. Little born ones. That's what it means in Greek. You know what I love about that phrase little born ones? That you have nothing to do with who you, with who you were born to. Your children had nothing to do with who they were born to. You had nothing to do with who you were born to. Little born ones is the, 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 most, the, most, the easiest way to show you that we have nothing ultimately to do with the solution. So some of you have your, 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 your pens ready, and you want me to tell you, what's the solution to my problem? What do I got to do? Well, here, here's the thing. At the end of the day, there's really nothing you can do. The reason why you can't be the solution is because you are the problem. The reason why I can't be the solution is because I am the problem. That's the problem. There's got to be something else. That's why most preaching really ticks me off. You know why? Because most pastors end right here. They're like, hey, go get them. You got this. Read more. Pray more. Do more. And all the idols will go away. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You can't do that. We can't. Because we are worshipers. And we are going to worship something. You cannot be the solution because you are the problem. I am the problem. That's the problem. And so we need a solution from outside. And so the solution is that phrase, dear children. Because the only people that can be described as dear children are people who know Jesus. It's only Christians that can be described as little children because that's who John is writing to in the letter. And he's saying, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And what's amazing about that is that he's giving us the gospel as the ultimate solution to our problem. And some of you are like, oh, here we go again. The gospel is the solution. Oh, here we go again. Yep, here we go. This is the gospel, church. The gospel is the solution. But here's the thing. You're 
You're like, oh, I, I don't need this because the gospel is for non-believers. The gospel is for unbelievers. Don't give me the gospel. Give me something to do because the gospel is for unbelievers. Well, hey, listen, newsflash, you and I, we're still unbelievers. We don't fully believe the gospel in our marriage. We don't fully believe the gospel at work. We don't fully believe the gospel with our parenting. The reason why we still struggle with idolatry is because we haven't embraced our identity. That's the problem. And so we need the gospel. The gospel is the only solution. It has to be the gospel. And what I love about the verse is that if you look at how John writes it, he gives you the indicative before he gives you the imperative. He tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. Because if you read the passage wrongly, one of the things you can assume is that John is telling you, hey, keep yourselves from idols and then you can be a dear child. But that's not what he says. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. In other words, the indicative comes before the imperative. The acceptance comes before the accomplishment. The approval comes before the achievement. The reason why I can't worship anything smaller than Jesus is because no other God can forgive me. No other God has died for me. No other God can give me what Jesus has given me. We've already been accepted. We've already been approved of. We've already been died for. That's why Jesus, the gospel, has to be the ultimate solution to our problem. It has to be. You know, one of the things that blows my mind in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And you know what's interesting about those three words? They directly correspond to our three root idols. Because the person who struggles with security doesn't believe Jesus is the way. The person who struggles with significance doesn't believe Jesus is the truth. The person who struggles with satisfaction doesn't believe Jesus is the life. Jesus shows up and says, hey, I am the, the thing you're looking for. I am the God that will totally satisfy you. And when you fail me, I will completely forgive you. And I am the one. I am your significance. I am your satisfaction. I am your security. I am the true bread. I am the true water. I am the true life. I am the true light. Jesus is everything that you need. It's Jesus. And the reason why we don't obey the second part of the verse is because we don't believe the first part of the verse. The reason why I commit idolatry is because I don't believe in my identity. That's the gospel. And that's the solution. Listen, to the degree that you believe to the degree that you lean into your gospel identity, to that same degree, you will overcome sinful idolatry. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you. And uh, Lord, I just want to admit that I am an idolater speaking to idolaters. Lord, at the end of the day, I, even now, even as I preach on idols, there is something other than you seated on the throne of my heart because that's how sinful and wicked we are. Lord, I pray for deliverance. I pray for whoever here doesn't know you yet. I pray that today would be the day they know you. I pray for the people, Lord, who do know you and who need the gospel because they really don't believe it yet. They really don't believe it in their marriage. They really don't believe it in their parenting. They really don't believe it in their jobs. I pray, Lord, that today, or they really don't believe it in their singleness. Lord, help us. If the gospel is for unbelievers, then that means the gospel is for all of us because none of us fully believe the gospel. Jesus, we need you. We love you. And thank you that you are the only God who can fully satisfy us. And when we fail, you are the only God who can completely forgive us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's respond to the, the truth that we just heard. And as we do, we, we acknowledge our need, our need for a Savior, our need for strength. We ask for faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So we sing this out.
a few weeks ago, I was sitting with a friend of mine, and he looked across the table and he said, Will, God loves you. God fully loves you. He fully accepts you. He's fully forgiven you. And he said, you could never, you never have to preach one more sermon or reach one more person or do one more thing. He said, God will never love you any more or any less than what he does now. And I literally almost broke down because I had forgotten the gospel. Someone here has forgotten the gospel. And someone here is looking to something smaller than Jesus to find what they already have in Jesus. Whoever you are, I pray that today would be the day. If it's for the first time you go to Jesus, or if it's for the hundredth and millionth time you would go to Jesus. Amen? Love you guys. You're dismissed.
mountains on the mountain can't stay on the mountain. What happens here has to get there. And God's delivery system is called faith. A little bit of faith. A little bit of faith. There are some things in our lives and in our community and in our city that by the power of the word of God and by the power of our worship are about to move from here to there. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? In fact, I feel like I want to set an atmosphere and we want to see some things move tonight in the To another life, no more sorrow and no more night. You're the light, let it shine now, let it shine now. Burning bright, cause we're not ashamed. Got a world to illuminate. You're the light, let it shine now, let it shine now. Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And if it's not too early, I would like to be the first to say Merry Christmas to all of you. So Merry Christmas. Yes, thank you. Yes, tis the season, y'all. I'd like to invite you guys to stand. Find somebody around you. Give them a hug. Give them a handshake.